So uh, we are doing a sermon recording this week uh, for 1 John chapter 2, end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, because two weeks ago, September 15th, we actually didn't get this recorded. So we are re-recording it in the Crossroads Auditorium without the congregation here, but I'm going to re-preach it as if people were here, uh, because we wanted to get this online and in the podcast. So bear with us as we do this. Um, The sermon before, we talked about abiding, remaining in Jesus, and we're still talking about that. But today what we will find is that one of the main ways that we abide is by seeing. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word, 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, if we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that you are with us uh, on Sunday morning and the rest of the week, and we ask that you would uh, be with us in the proclaiming of the word and in the hearing of it. Those who are listening um, this week and and beyond, um, please be with them. Give us your spirit uh, that we might have our eyes and our hearts and our minds open to your love for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I was born with a congenital defect in my eyes. The muscles were not coordinated, so my eyes weren't good at focusing on one object simultaneously. This is usually called strabismus, and people refer to it as cross eyes or walleye. When I was a child, doctors tried correcting it by strengthening the eye muscles through patching one eye or through corrective glasses. I even had surgery on my eye muscles to straighten my eyes. Now, the reason to do all this is If the eyes don't bring in a similar image, the brain can't merge them into a three-dimensional picture. In that case, you wouldn't have normal depth perception. And this is what happened for me. Nothing worked. My right eye was dominant, and that's what I still use to see with today. My left eye is very weak, and it only serves as peripheral vision. I have no actual depth perception 3D movies don't work for me, I couldn't hit a Little League fastball, and I'm not good at judging distances. Sometimes I bump into things or reach for something and I totally miss it. However, I do function well in society to the extent that my condition is probably news to you. And that's because, mostly subconsciously, my brain and body develop tricks and strategies to see the world as accurately as possible. I pay more attention to motion and size differential in shadows, for instance. I can't see well enough to hit a fastball, but I can have a near spotless driving record. The point is, when our vision doesn't function well automatically, we do things to correct it. We are intentional about seeing the world as accurately as possible. Sometimes it's even a matter of life and death. 
And that's what John is talking about here in this passage. He's talking about how we see God. How do we view him? How do we face him? What do we find when we explore his word or work in our lives? What do we think of him? What do you see when you look in God's direction? No matter who you are, Christian or not, you are training yourself to see God in a certain way. And what we find here is that we abide in Jesus as we see God for who he is. We see his love. We see, we look forward to what he is making us into. But this isn't automatic. This is a choice. John commands us to see him this way. So we are to see God's fatherly love. And we are to look forward to, to see God's perfecting love. Just two points. So first, see God's fatherly love. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This might be one of the most sublime sentences in the whole Bible, and yet our eyes can easily skim over it. For me, it partly has to do with this opening word, see. It's the same word as behold. And this word see or behold oftentimes has no force in English. And you automatically begin to drift away in your thoughts. So much so that we use behold as a humor device. Behold the smorgasbord of donuts on Donut Sunday. Behold the catastrophe that is Raiders football or Miami Dolphins football. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. We're just prepared for it to kind of go in one ear and out the other. And that's the opposite of what John is saying here. This is a command in the imperative mood. It's not a suggestion. It's not a rhetorical flourish. Look at, face, don't turn away from, deal with, study, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is incredible, and it's one of the primary ways, maybe one of the best sentences to distill the whole gospel message. And some of you are still like, God's love, Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Bob has to say this stuff. It's his job, and it is my job. And because it's my job, I know how difficult it is for me and for all of us to see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Without training, our eyes are naturally bent towards seeing other things. In fact, naturally, without rescue, without correction from Jesus, we're in trouble. Look at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. See, all humans are born into the natural state of shrinking from God in shame at his coming. It's exactly what our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. Perhaps you remember in Genesis 3, Satan, through the serpent, is talking to Eve, and he tells her that if she and Adam eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree they were expressly forbidden to eat from, if they did that, then their eyes would be opened, and they would be like God. The trick to being like God was to have correct vision, Satan was arguing. The text goes on to say that Eve saw the tree, And it was a delight to the eyes. And after they both ate, their eyes were opened. But what they saw now was their shame. And so when God appeared in the cool of the day calling for them, they ran and hid. They shrunk back in shame. Why? 
Well, God called out to Adam, and Adam replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. All Adam could see was a God who would justly punish him for his shame and sin. And every human being has done this over and over ever since. Every human but Jesus. This is what makes sin so powerful and awful. It not only helps you do wrong, it gets you to see wrong. It convinces you to see God as only a powerful being who is out to punish you or is just simply indifferent to you. He could never be interested in rescuing you or showing you grace. He could never call you child or be your father. Fell into sexual temptation again? Well, you better run and hide from God in shame. Went on a shopping binge? Well, you better run and hide from God in shame. Can't rest and pray? You better run and hide from God in shame. Blew up in anger again at the people you love? You better run and hide from God in shame. You better run and hide or convince yourself God doesn't exist if you can. You know what the number one command of the Bible is, the one most frequently given? Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't run and hide. Instead, face, look at, deal with, study, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What kind of love is it? That word there in Greek, what kind of, it refers to something foreign from a different country. This kind of love is unique and it's different. Here's why. There's nothing unique or special about a father acknowledging a biological child. There's no special love in calling your biological child your child. That's just stating the truth. But the further away you get from that, the more special it becomes. Adopting a child you already know from your extended family, okay, that's something. Adopting a stranger, well, that's harder. Adopting a child with dramatic special needs, well, that's very difficult. That's very special love. What about adopting someone who hates you and thinks of you as the enemy? What about adopting someone who killed your only biological son? Okay, now that's special. That's alien love. Jesus came to a fear-filled and dark world. And he absorbed its fear and darkness and violence on the torture device of the cross so that God could adopt, God could call us children, the people crucifying Jesus and us. What kind of adopting, choosing, self-giving love is that? Instead of running and hiding and shrinking back in shame, see what kind of love God has given to us. And the place to look where that is all summed up is the cross. Jesus dying in our place, taking our sin and death. What alien love? Do you see what kind of love the Father has given to us? Because we're all looking for a Father's love. Thomas Wolfe, the great American author, said this, the deepest search in life, the thing that in one way or another was central to all living, was man's search to find a father, not merely the father of his flesh, not merely the lost father of his youth, but the image of a strength and wisdom external to his need and superior to his hunger, to which the belief and power of his own life could be united. Because we're looking for one and need one, a father seems to have a special ability to bless or curse their children. I mention this partly because many of you have not had a stellar father, and some of, some of them have been awful or non-existent. 
And that can impact the way we think of God. Long Long is the world's most popular concert pianist. He grew up in China. And when he was a boy, his father pushed him relentlessly. And when he was dropped by his first piano teacher in Beijing, his father urged him to kill himself. This is what he said, die now rather than live in shame. Long Long's father told his son to jump off the balcony after he thrust a bottle of pills in his hand. A father's rejection or absence can be devastating. And sometimes we think this is what God is communicating to us. But it's not true. It's a lie. Della McCulloch, who is now the Kansas City Chiefs running backs coach, he was born to a teen mom late in 1972, and she immediately placed him for adoption. McCulloch grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, with a single mom facing many of the typical problems of a Rust Belt community. Football was his escape, and he never knew anything about his biological parents. In high school, he was recruited by some big-time football teams, but he ended up signing with Miami of Ohio, much less of a football school, primarily because of their running back's coach, Sherman Smith. See, Sherman Smith was also from Youngstown, and he had played professionally in the NFL. But more than that, he was a man of character. He loved his recruits. He loved his players. And everyone wanted to play for him. And so McCulloch actually followed in Smith's footsteps, becoming a running backs coach as well. And Smith would get him internships and get him interviews and give him advice, and they remained close for decades. Ultimately, a few years ago, McCulloch found his birth mom, and they had their first conversation on the phone, and almost immediately he asked, who is my father? Because McCulloch had always had a mom, his adoptive mom, but he never had a dad. And his birth mom said, your father is a man named Sherman Smith from Youngstown. The same Sherman Smith, of course. He never knew about you. He never knew I was pregnant. This is the same man who had been McCulloch's only father figure for decades. And all the joking over the years from various teammates and coaches about how the two looked so much alike and carried themselves alike finally made sense. McCulloch said of how he was thinking at the time, if you would have told me to pick who my father was, there's no way I would have picked him because I might have thought I wasn't worthy for him to be my father. After everything was confirmed, the two finally met face to face for the first time as father and son. Smith already had a family of his own with grown children. But when McCulloch got to Smith's door, Smith embraced him and said, My son. It was the first time any man had ever called him that. My son. And it came from the man he most respected and looked up to. And it meant, I'm proud of you. I'm happy to call you mine. This is the kind of love God has for us. He's not telling us to run or hide or die in shame. He is with us through our lives, whether we know it or not, doing good to us. And when we come to him finally through his son Jesus, he embraces us and says, my son, my daughter. He owns us as his children. Anyone who comes to him through Jesus, he owns as his child. It's never too late. And if this sounds good to you, you can have it today. Don't you see what kind of love the Father has given to you? 
that you should be called child of God. And so you are. We need to train our eyes to see it. We need to pray it. We need to sing it. We need to speak about it with each other. We need to confess not believing it. We need to read God's word as pointing us to it. When we want to run and hide in shame, we need to speak this verse back to ourselves or ask someone to speak it back to us. We need to remember it in our baptism and taste it in the Lord's Supper. We are to see God's fatherly love. But secondly, we are also to look forward to his perfecting love. Chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. See, being a child of God is fantastic, but that's the beginning of the story. It's not the end. John makes it clear, right? What we will be has not yet appeared. We are not yet perfect. We have not yet attained it as Paul says elsewhere. We all still have sin. We all still struggle. We all can face suffering and sorrow and temptation. And we are all still dying. Now this is important to underline because our first question might be, if I'm God's child and he loves me, why am I still facing these things? Well, at this moment, the children of God are waiting. They are waiting for his appearance, Jesus' second coming. Only then will God's children become the grown-up sons and daughters God intends. Now we are children. Then we shall be mature. God's children will be like him. How can we know? Well, there's one implicit argument John is making throughout this letter, but it's evident here in the passage as well. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Second half of verse one, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And then verse three, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I'm sure you've heard this phrase, like father, like son. Well, these three verses are saying, like father, like children. How do you know you're gonna become like God, like resurrected Jesus? Well, like father, like child. If you're God's child, you're gonna become like him. Now, this is really important because what we are tempted to say to ourselves and tempted to believe when told is that we do not belong to God because we are not enough like him. How can I be God's child if I act this way, think this way, talk this way? If my first reaction is always to defend and never apologize, if I can't stop equating my value with my paycheck, if I only love people who serve me and love me back, how can I say I'm God's child? Well, what you will be has not yet appeared. We are waiting. And John says, we know we will be like him because like father, like children. You know what it is, what it's called to confidently wait? The Bible calls that hope. And that's where John leads us in verse three. Again, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. To be a child of God now, to abide in Jesus, is to hope, to look forward to God's perfecting love. And that hope in itself is transformative. It is purifying, as John says, because we become attached to what we hope in. 
Our hopes bend and shape and form our other affections and loves. Our hopes set our priorities. If we are hoping in God's perfecting love, that crowds out other lesser hopes. It clears space for love for God and and love of neighbor in God's name. It makes the three S's of the world's desires, sensuality, status, and stuff, not so powerful and attractive. What are you hoping in? What are you looking towards? Is it God's perfecting love? See, it's important we talk about it like that because, like I just said, we sometimes are tempted to believe that it's our actions that tell us that we are God's children. So we actually begin to hope in our own progress or our own performance. And that's a recipe for either self-righteousness or despair. You cannot prove by performance that you are God's child. You cannot prove it by performance. Ironically, it's only by believing you are God's child through his loving grace that you can actually begin behaving like his child. It is our hoping in him, seeing his fatherly love and looking forward to his perfecting love that changes us and enables us to act more and more like God's children. Finally, there's one other thing that John says here that's exciting and mysterious. At the end of verse two, he writes, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Truly seeing God as he is will transform us and make us like him. This is the end of all human longing, as Paul talks about it as well in 1 Corinthians 13, to see God with our eyes, to know him directly and immediately. We will be satisfied just in seeing him. And seeing him will perfect us, make us like him. Perhaps you've heard how married couples begin to look like each other. It's actually been clinically shown that over years, married couples do begin to take on more and more similar physical features. That kind of intimacy, connection, time together, in various ways creates a kind of mirroring effect. Well, being connected to God more deeply than marriage at his return will create that kind of effect on us only to a much higher degree. And this is a one-way street. God doesn't become like us. We become like him. Have you ever seen something so beautiful or so powerful that it changes you? It could be a landscape. It could be a movie or a piece of art. It could be an event that you witnessed. But we sometimes see things that change us. And that's what seeing God will do for his children. His beauty and glory will make them beautiful and glorious. But only for his children, for those whose eyes have been prepared to see him. To those who are not his children, God's beauty and glory will be awful. Remember what John says in verse 28, the children of God will greet him with confidence, others will shrink back in shame. Makoto Fujimura is a famous Japanese artist who works in the United States, and he studies and practices an ancient Japanese art style where he used crushed minerals mixed with oil for paint, malachite, azurite, and metals like gold and silver. He calls them extravagant materials. One time his professor saw what he was painting, and his professor said that it was so beautiful, it was terrifying. That's the way God's beauty will be interpreted by his enemies. 
a beauty that is so otherworldly, that so contrasts with their own non-beauty, that they have no option but to run in fear. Fujimura didn't know what to do with that painting that his professor talked about, and so he destroyed it. He destroyed the painting that was so beautiful it was terrifying. Now, since he has become a committed Christian, and he writes and speaks globally about Christianity and the arts, and he explained about his conversion that he didn't know what to do with beauty. He had no explanation for beauty and transcendence. He said, every day I sought higher transcendence through these extravagant materials, and I found success. And yet the weight of beauty I saw in the materials began to crush my own heart. I could not justify the use of such extravagant materials if I found my heart unable to contain their glory. This experience was part of what led him to faith. Because the gospel, God becoming our father through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son, the gospel was big enough and glorious enough to contain the beauty he was seeing. The beauty in this world is pointing to something even more beautiful that is coming, God himself. And are our eyes trained to see and appreciate his beauty? Are we looking forward to his perfecting love? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I moved out to California when I was 23. And I was out here for six years. I taught and did ministry. I embraced all things Silicon Valley and Northern California. The mountains, the beach, uh, wine tasting, Tahoe. I even tried surfing. San Francisco, everything. I loved it. I loved the physical beauty. I loved the culture and diversity. I loved the weather. I loved everything about it. But I moved back to St. Louis to begin seminary after six years, and I assumed it would be difficult moving back to drab old Missouri and St. Louis, going from one of the most beautiful places in the world here, Northern California, to not one of the most beautiful places in the world, St. Louis. And I'm sorry to you listening in St. Louis, no offense, right? I grew up there. But the thing was, I moved back, and I realized Missouri and St. Louis were beautiful, Which is surprising, right? You'd think the contrast would make St. Louis all the less beautiful. But being here for six years had trained my eyes to see and take in more beauty. So now I could see it even where I grew up, right? Which is always ordinary, right? But what had been ordinary now, I was able to see the beauty and because my eyes had been trained by being out in California, Are your eyes being trained to see the beauty of forgiveness? Are your eyes being trained to see the beauty of God's image in every single human being? Are your eyes being trained to see the beauty in joyful obedience? Are your eyes being trained to look forward to the redemption and renewal of all things? Are your eyes being trained to see how what is ugly and broken will be made beautiful again by God? This is what John is talking about here. Train your eyes. See God's fatherly love now. Look forward to seeing him in his full glory when his love will perfect you. Let that hope begin to purify you now. What's ironic is Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God. So they sinned and then their eyes were opened and they ran from God, shrinking back in shame. They used to walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day. They saw him. But it seems that once their eyes were opened, 
Sin distorted their vision and they never looked upon him again. They couldn't face him. But see, we still want the same thing, to be like God. And it will happen for those who look upon God with eyesight that has been corrected by Jesus. In Jesus, you recognize your sin and need, and you see it met by a gracious God whose beauty and glory is fully expressed at the cross of Christ. To the untrained eye, the cross looks like a terrible waste. It looks horrifyingly ugly to the world. But to the child of God, it is the picture of redeeming love. It's all in how you see it. When we have to face and look at God, we will see what our eyes have been trained to see. If we see an angry, distant, terrifyingly righteous, wrathful judge, we will run from him and there will be nowhere to hide. But if we see a loving father who gave up his only son for us, we will run to him, seeing him as he truly is, transformed in his loving embrace. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you um, that you promise uh, to come to all who call upon you in your son Jesus, to come to them as a loving father. And we ask that you would help each of us to see today what kind of love you have for us, that you would adopt us, that you would make us sons and daughters, your children, and help us to look forward to the day when we will see you face to face and not run from you in fear or shame, but be completely transformed by your beauty and glory. And let that hope crowd out all these other lesser hopes. Make us more and more your children. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.